Okay, so we're going to be in Galatians uh, chapter 5, at least to start, and then we're going to actually going to be kind of jumping around to lots of different places. So uh, we're starting a new series uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and I've been tasked with uh, talking about the first fruit that is mentioned, which is love. And thinking about love, it got me thinking, I just, just started thinking about songs, and just the first songs that came to my head that had love in the title. And just, there's just the first ones that came to my head. I'm sure there's a, a thousand more, but all you need is love. What the world needs now is love. Endless love. Love story. What is love? I want to know what love is. Right? Love is a mini-splendored thing. It's a crazy little thing called love. Uh, can you feel the love tonight? I will always love you. Love will keep us together. Can't buy me love. I have a few more, but I'll just stop right there. That, that was just off the top of my head. I mean, I'm sure you guys can think of hundreds of other songs, right? Love is, is something that we're all seeking after. It's a common theme in our lives. It's, it's not just in the songs, right? Think about the, the movies that we watch, right? I, I, I've been told I, that's a common thing in my life, right, that I talk about movies whenever I'm up here preaching. I, I have a movie illustration, right? So I, I got I to gotta throw that one in there, right? So um, my favorite movie, what I tell people is my favorite movie is, is The Princess Bride, right, which is ultimately a love story, right? Marriage, right? That one's for you, Billy. Marriage is what brings us together, <clears throat> right? So, but that's a love story, right? It's a story about a uh, a farm boy named Wesley and the princess Buttercup in this love. But really, if you go to the heart of that story, it's, it's actually a grandpa reading the story to his child. So it's not even just this, this romantic love story. There's a love of a grandparent to their grandchild in that story as well. And, and think of so many other movies, not just the romantic uh, movies that we like to watch, but so many movies have love as its theme. Uh, one that's considered by many to be the greatest movie of all time, Citizen Kane. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that before, but ultimately that story is about a man who has all of the wealth in the world, and the only thing that he really desired was to go back to his childhood and have the love of a mother that he'd never had. Right, That love of a mother as a child that he didn't experience. So many other movies, It's a Wonderful Life, one that we watch every single year, is, is, a, is a story about a love between families, little women, a story of love between sisters. That's a book, too, I guess. So, I mean, it's in our, it's in our literature as well. Um, so, many, so many movies out there. I could, I could name them over and over, um, but I'll just leave it at that. Um, so love is this universal characteristic, right? It's, it's, it's all of humanity strives for love. And we want to be loved. But why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so ingrained in us that all, all of humanity seeks after love? We're going to kind of get into this, but really I think that, that love is, is ingrained in all of us because God is a loving God, right? And, and as we will discuss, love is, is not just uh, an attribute of God, it's his very nature. He is love, right? And so if we, being created in God's image, uh, that would inherently conclude, I would conclude that we have that love within us, right? That we've been made in God's image and God is love, so we have this love within us. But because of the fall, because of sin, that love has been distorted, right? We see so much distortion of, of love in our world today um, that ultimately many times turns into 
a self-love more than anything else. Unfortunately, we, we seek after our own self-interest. As you look through the book of Galatians, uh, we see that there's a struggle. Uh, when we look in Galatians, there, there are false teachers that are, that are trying to tell the Galatians, yeah, we need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ. But you know what? We also need this too. We need to add this to it. Um, and, and they're struggling with that. They're trying to say, the law is necessary for the Christian life, right? They're trying to add the law to uh, Christianity, to the gospel. And Paul assures them that they have freedom in Christ, and pursuing the demands of the law would only enslave them uh, to their flesh and encourage them to walk in the flesh. And Paul calls them to, to walk in the Spirit, and when they do that, when they walk in the Spirit, they won't gratify those lusts of the flesh, those things that we seek, uh, those self-centered desires, and, and those who walk in the Spirit, it says, uh, will demonstrate fruit. And the first fruit, which we're going to talk about today, again, is, is love. And I just want to, just to look in Galatians 5, if you would read with me, uh, starting in verse 16. It says, But I say, walk in the, by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of, rain, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. <clears throat> so as we read through that, as we see, we get to this, this portion when he describes the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, the first one that he mentions is love. And, and again, I ask, why do you think that is? Why do you think Love would be the first fruit that's mentioned. Well, I think the scripture makes it clear that love is of utmost importance. Right? In another letter uh, that we'll look at here in a little bit, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about this idea that there's faith, there's hope, and there's love. But the greatest of these, he says, is love. <clears throat> in another passage, uh, Paul was talking to the Colossians. He wrote a letter to the Colossians, and, and it's very similar, uh, a very similar list to this fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about these character qualities that they need to put on. And he says, put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, so many things that I, like I just read. Uh, but he concludes that in Colossians 3.14, it says, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, I think that it's clear that love is supreme. I think that, I think, Ultimately, love is mentioned first here because if you don't have love, if you don't know true biblical love, you're not going to have joy. If you don't know love, you're not going to have peace. You're not going to be patient, right? Because you're going to be striving for your own thing. You're going to want what I want, and I want it now. You're not going to be lovingly waiting for others. You're going to be impatient, right? Without all of these things, without love, we cannot have any of the other character qualities. It's, it's kind of the, it overflows into all of, all of these other things. And so looking at this today, again, I think that love is supreme. And I think there's three things 
that I want to look at today. We're going to look at the creator of love, the content of love, and then the call to love. So first, as we look at the creator of love, we see that God is love. If you look in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, in verse 8, it says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then later on in verse 16, he says it again. So we've come to know and to believe that the love God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. So God is love. It is his very nature. Love is his nature. Right? It doesn't just say that he loves us. It does say that. As we read other scriptures, it does say that God loves us. But it's even beyond that. It says that God is love. As you look through the scripture, there's three things that you see uh, that, that describe God in this way. They, we see that um, first in John 4.24, it says God is spirit. Right? In another passage in John 1.5, it says God is light. So uh, spirit means he's, he's uh, not a visible substance. He has no physical body, right? And so he's unlimited, in, in, in other words. And when it says that God is light, it says he's holy and, and good, right, as opposed to the darkness. And then this third description, so God is spirit, God is light, and God is love here in First John. So love is not merely one of his attributes. It's not an action. It's not a character quality but it's his nature. As one one author said it this way, God was love long before he had made any creatures to be the objects of his love, even from all eternity. So even from before we were made, God is love. So not only God is love, but I think that love defines all of his other attributes. If you think about the the attributes of God, if uh, if any of you have ever studied that, uh, you talk about his omnipresence, his omnipotence, the eternality. There's so many things. I just want to look at a couple of these things. Uh, one, God is eternal, right? But if God is love, that means God's love is eternal. Jeremiah 31.3, uh, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So God is faithful because he loves us with an everlasting love. It's eternal. It's unending. God is sovereign, right? We believe that God, in the sovereignty of God. Well, if God is love, that means his love is also sovereign, right? So the only reason that God loves any of us would be through his own sovereign will. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, he says it was not, he's talking to the Israelites here, and he says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Cooper just mentioned that, uh, a pre, another passage, right? That idea that God has saved us. He's redeemed Israel, out of the hands of Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh. And it wasn't because of anything inherently good in the Israelites, right? It wasn't that. It was that God chose to set his love on the Israelites. <clears throat> Arthur Pink uh, said it this way. I, think, I mean, this is just incredible when you think about this. God did not love us because we loved him, but he loved us before we had a particle of love for him. God's love for me and for each of his own was entirely unmoved by anything in us. 
What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, there was everything to repel him. Everything calculated to make him loathe me. Sinful, depraved, a massive corruption with no good thing in me. That is is a rough description of who we are, right? But that is true. That is who we are. We are, apart from Christ, we are nothing, right? We have nothing. But God has chose to set his love upon us. And it is a sovereign love that he has. His love is unchanging, right? A a theological term is the immutability is, is how it's described. But that really just means that God never changes, right? He's the same yesterday, today, forever, And so if that's true, if God is unchanging and God is love, that means his love is unchanging, right? His love will never change. So Romans 8, 35, I think is a a great description of this. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, right? And then he continues on later. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor Things present, nor things to come, nor power, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because his love will never change, and nothing can stop that. So not only is God love, right? God is love, but also God demonstrates love. J.I. Packer, in his, in his book, Knowing God, he gives a, a definition of, of love, of God's love specifically. And he says, God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relationship. So God's love is an exercise of his goodness to individual sinners. It's demonstrated. His love is demonstrated in goodness to undeserving people. Psalm 145, uh, 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So he is good to all, even those who are undeserving of that, which is all of us, right? Another passage, Exodus 33, if you recall, uh, in the previous chapter, in chapter 32, you have the story of, of the golden calf, where the Israelites build this calf, and they're, they're worshiping this thing, and says, this is your God now. He's, this is the one that saved us. And God was angry, right? God was angry at them. And Moses came to God, and he interceded on their behalf. And, and in doing so, um, God told Moses, ask me anything, and I'll do it for you, essentially. And, and Moses' response was, please, show me your glory. Right? That's what he asked for, is show me your glory. And what was his response? What was the Lord's response? He says, I will show my goodness to you. And then later he says it again, that he will show his glory. So God's goodness is tied to his glory. Right? It, it is his goodness that passes by Moses in this. And he says, um, when he does pass by, what the Lord says to him is, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's his goodness passed over, and that goodness looked like mercy and grace 
and patience, right? He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. That steadfast love is, is his hesed, right? I can't, I can't preach without using the word hesed, right, too. That's what I've been told. So hesed is his covenant faithfulness, right? And it, it, it's tied to this idea that he loves. It's his covenant relationship with them. He loves his people, and he will seek after them and show his goodness to them. Another passage that I think is important to look at here is John 13. In John chapter 13, uh, we have, uh, it's the night that Jesus was arrested, and it's before the Passover feast. It says that Jesus knew that his hour uh, had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he came and he loved his own who were in the world. If you recall in John chapter 1, it talks about when Jesus came, right, at the incarnation. It says he came into his own and his own did not receive him, right? But even still, even though they did not receive him, it says that Jesus came and he loved his own, even those who did not receive him. He loved them, and he loved them to the end, it says. It was all the way to, as you get later on in the book of John, right, all the way to the cross. <clears throat> so he loved them to the end. And that's, that's the other point, is, is he demonstrates his love uh, in sending his son to die in place of sinners. A few passages, uh, we don't have time to look at all of them, but I mean, John 3.16 is one that clearly comes to mind, right? It's, it's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, I think Ephesians 2 is, is a wonderful passage, thinking about this. He, he just, in verses 1 through 3, he's talking about all of the, uh, the sin, right? That we're dead in our trespasses and sins because we follow the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and then the sinful uh, flesh within us, right? But then it says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So as he was rich in mercy. Again, this idea of mercy, uh, that word, if you go into the Old Testament, I'm going to say it again. It was the word hesed was used to describe his mercy, right? It is because of his, he is rich in that covenant faithfulness and love. And not only that, it says because of the great love he had for us. It doesn't even just say that he loved us. It was a great love. It is an abounding love that he has for us who are so undeserving. First John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So love gives even at great cost to itself. Jesus laid down his life at great cost for us. And then 1 John 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent us, or sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice, this wrath bearing sacrifice for our sins. 
So that is the creator of love, God, the creator of love. Next, uh, let's, let's look at the content of love. What does love entail? And I think there's no better passage to go to than 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, so we're going to look in 1 Corinthians 13 at a few uh, ideas of what is love. We're going to look at beginning in verse 4, and I have it broken down into two portions within this, this idea of the content of love in 1 Corinthians. You see, uh, first you see what love is not, and then you'll see what love is. So first let's look at the, the negative descriptions in 1 Corinthians 13 of what love is not. I'm just going to read them first, and then, and then we're going to go. Uh, verses, beginning in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So first, looking at the negative descriptions, love is not envious. Love does not envy, right? This is a person, uh, a person who has love doesn't boil with jealousy, right? We, we're not jealous uh, for others. Envy, if you recall, as I read earlier in Galatians 5, that's one of the works of the flesh, right? So if we're not loving, if we're not keeping in step with the Spirit, if we're not demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, one of the first things that can happen is we become envious. We become jealous of those around us. So if we're not living in step with the Spirit, we will be envious, to love is not boastful, right? This is a person that, that talks a lot. Like we probably know, know these people. It's a, a, a windbag. Have you heard that expression before? It's that person that's just, just constantly talking, talking about themselves, right? They're building themselves up. We probably can think of, of pe- maybe people we work with or someone we know uh, that, that acts like that. This is really almost like the opposite of envy, right? It's, it's the person that is talking so much about themselves that they want, I want you to envy me because of that. Like, I want you to see how good I am and envy me. But love doesn't do that. Love is not boastful. Instead, love goes to the other person, and instead of talking about myself, I'm talking about you, right? I want to hear about you. I want to see what you're doing. I want to know about your accomplishments. That's what love is. Love is not arrogant. Uh, this word arrogant here. Uh, literally translated is, is the idea of puffed up, right? He's puffed up. We use that same terminology today. We may not say someone is puffed up, but I've heard people say he's got a big ego, right? He's got an inflated ego is, is a term that, that I've heard people use today. It's that same idea. He's inflated. He's puffed up. He's making himself big, right? And, and again, that's, uh, <laughs> you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, Six times he uses this term to be puffed up. I'm not going to look at all of those, uh, but he is telling them, you are arrogant. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. You are arrogant and love is not arrogant. So what is he saying? He said, you're not loving then. Like you don't know what love is. If you're acting like this, then you are not loving. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8.1 is the only one I'll look at. He's talking about the idea of, of uh, the meat that's being offered to idols, and they're having debates and discussions on whether, whether or not you should eat that, right? And, and he, he says, we know all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
right? So he contrasts that idea right there too. Knowledge will puff up. It builds us up, makes us seem bigger than we are, but love builds others up, right? It's, we're not bringing ourselves up, we're bringing others up. That's what love does. Love is not rude, right? The idea here is a person that's, that's behaving indecently or shamefully or disgracefully, right? Love doesn't do that. You're not rude. You're not going to be bringing up uh, disgraceful things. Um, this is one author says, is love is tactful and does nothing that would raise a blush, right? That's what love is. It doesn't insist on its own way, right? We're not seeking after our own gain. You see so much of this, right? Love is, is so selfless, right? What love is not is not selfish. All of these things are selfish attitudes, right? Arrogant, rude, insisting own way are all selfish, self-centered ideas. And love is the opposite of that. It's giving and serving and looking to others' interests, right? It's not irritable. You're not easily provoked or irritated. You're not touchy, a touchy person. This one kind of hits home to me sometimes. It, it, it can be just the little things of life sometimes are just like, it's just irritating, right? Just this irritation that we have. Um, but that's not love. Love is not easily provoked. Love is not easily irritable, right? We're, we're long-suffering as a word. We're patient, uh, as we'll look at here in a little bit. Love isn't resentful. This is literally the idea of to be resentful is to take a record or an inventory of evil, is what it says here. We do not keep a record of all of the wrongdoings, right? It's like, oh, I remember when you did this to me three years ago, you said this to me, <laughs> right? We don't, we don't do that. Like, that's not what love is. Love does not continue to bring up the past things that we've already talked through, right? The things that we've already, that's not forgiving. If we've already talked about these things and we've already sought restoration in these things, but we're still bringing it up, that's a person who's resentful, a person who's keeping a record of wrongs, and that is not love. <clears throat> it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, right? There's no joy in evil. There's no delight in that, but instead we delight in the truth, so that's what love is not. Let's take a look at what love is. Right? The first thing he says is love is patient. Right? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Right? So many of these we see, they're so tied to this idea of, of love. Right? It's patience. In other words, it's, it's uh, to be long-suffering. It's a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action or passion. So we are holding in this, these things and we don't allow it to give room for action. We don't allow this passion to overtake us, right? And we, it's, that's, that's what happens sometimes, right? We think we're patient. We're holding, we're holding it. It's like, okay, that's good. Okay, it's all right. But then it happens enough times. It just wears on you and then you just have an outburst, right? That's, that's, that, is not, that is not right, right? That is, that is not being patient. We are not suffering long. It's, it's the idea that it takes a long time before you're fuming, right? A loving person is, is in a constant state of this too, right? This is, this is written in the present tense, so it's, it's a continual action. It's not just a one-time deal. It's something that we are to be consistently doing, consistently living a life 
of patience. And then love is kind. You go back to the fruit of the Spirit again, right? Kindness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. All of these things are this idea of it's uh, to believe all things is, is we're trusting, we're having faith that the other person's actions are pure, right? We're hoping that their actions are pure. That's, that's the idea. And, and I think it's interesting to note that, that he uses those terms. Again, love believes all things, love hopes all things. To believe is to have faith. And he talks about that at the end of, of the chapter, right? There's faith, there's hope, and there's love. But the greatest of these is love, right? Because love hopes and love believes, right? We can't have those things without love. And then love endures all things, right? We're, we're patient. We have fortitude. That's, that's what this idea, to endure all things, it's, it's a military term. Essentially, we're holding a position at all costs, even unto death, right? Uh, this is how one author put it this way. I thought this was, uh, was really good. It's, love has this indefatigable capacity to endure despite the ingratitude, bad conduct, and problems that all communal living involves, and this without complaining or becoming discouraged. When the motives prove to be impure, love bears it with no resentment, right? So we believe all things, we hope all things, right? We trust and we believe that these people's motives are pure, but when it proves that they are not pure, we bear it, (laughs) we endure it. We do it with patience and with love and without resentment. And then love never ends, Why would love never end? It's because God is love, right? And if God is love and God is eternal, then it would stand to reason that love never ends. So we've seen now the creator of love, and we've seen the content of love. Now let's take a brief look here at the call to love. Two things, we're called to love God, and we're called to love others. So first, looking at, at this idea, we're called to love God. In Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30 is what we're going to look at. But uh, what's happening in this passage is uh, there's a group of religious leaders that are trying to, to get to Jesus, right? They're trying to question him and they're testing him, trying to, to provoke him and try to get him, trap him in some way. Right? And the, the Pharisees come and they ask him a question about, about paying taxes to Caesar. And he's able to answer that question. And then the, the Sadducees come and they're questioning him about the resurrection. And he answers all of those questions. And then we get to this point here and it says that a scribe comes and he comes and talks to Jesus. And he's, he's heard everything that's been going on. And it seems like this scribe actually uh, has a little more respect for Jesus and, and is seeing a positive, you know, has a positive response to him. And so he asks him the question, what is the greatest commandment? Right? He's, he's trying to look at what is, you look at all of the law, what is the most important thing? And look at Jesus' response in Mark 29, or 12, verse 29. He says, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So Jesus responds by quoting back to Deuteronomy again, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, uh, in a passage that is, is known as the, the Shema. 
right? It's, it's something that the, the Israelites would have been very familiar with. In fact, many of these same Pharisees and Sadducees probably were reciting this verse every morning and every night, right? It, it's something that they, they would say, Hear, O Lord, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And, and it says that the, as if you read in Deuteronomy, as it goes even further, he says that you will teach these things diligently to your children, right? And you're going to write them on the doorpost. You're going to have them as frontlets over your eyes. It's something that you're always going to remember and you're always teaching this thing. It's, a, it's an important teaching that they would have understood. They would have been very familiar with this passage. <clears throat> but Jesus roots this command to love God in the idea of his covenant again, right? And this covenantal God, his uniqueness. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? It is his uniqueness and his covenantal relationship that he made with the nation of Israel. And then he says we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. If you go to Deuteronomy, he only mentions in Deuteronomy to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But Jesus adds the mind in here too, and I, th I thought that was interesting to note. And I think, I think it could be that you know, he's being questioned. His intellect is being questioned in this moment, right? He's being questioned by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. They're trying to trap him in this, trap him with like intellectual debates. And I think that he adds this idea of, of the mind also being something that he's being attacked with. And we need to love God even in our intellect. We need to love God with every single facet of our being is to be demonstrated uh, by love. Uh, just briefly, looking at a couple other passages, uh, looking at the love that we are called to, to love God. So 1 John 4, 19, those who love God do so because he first loved us, right? It says we love because he first loved us. It's impossible to love if God has not already shown his love to us. Uh, Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So those who love God are being conformed to the image of his son. We are growing in Christ's likeness. Those who love God, right? Those who uh, love God are known by God, 1 Corinthians 8, 3. Uh, those who don't love God are condemned. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone has no love for God, let him be accursed. Right? Those who don't love God are condemned. And those who do love God have a future hope. Uh, let's look at James 1.2. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So those who love him will endure and will receive the crown of life. <clears throat> Not only are we called to love God, but we're called to love others too. Right? Going back to this passage in Mark, uh, he tells this, this scribe, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? To love your neighbor as as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19 here. So it's, again, it's not anything new. It's not a new teaching uh, that they're receiving. It's, it's uh, something that they would have been familiar with. But a wholehearted love for God necessarily finds its expression in a selfless concern and love for others, right? If we're not loving others, 
then we're not really loving God either. So when Jesus says we are to, to love others as ourselves, I've heard, we've, I've heard this a lot, that we're, we're to love ourselves, right? That's something that's taught uh, in uh, society today. We just have to love ourselves. I, I don't love myself enough, <laughs> right? No, I think I love myself a little too much, <laughs> right? And so when, what he is saying here is when we love one another, love our neighbor as ourselves, he's saying, I know that you have this love for yourself, you have this concern, this self-interest, but you need to turn that around and have that same love, that same interest that you have in yourself, pass that along to others too. Demonstrate that same love, that same concern for others. Right? We are to love as you love yourself. But Jesus takes us a step further. In John chapter 13, when he's talking to his disciples, he says not only love as you love yourself, he says love as I loved you. Right? In John chapter 13, uh, this is right after the passage I mentioned previously where it says that he loved his own and he loved them to the end. Right after that, he goes down to each one of his disciples, including Judas, the one who, who was about to betray him. And he went down and he washed their feet as a servant. He put that towel around, wrapped it around him and went down and knelt down and, and washed their feet in service to them because he loved them. And then he says to them, this new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when Jesus says this, again, it's, 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 uh, it's a new commandment. He's not saying that they didn't understand the concept of loving others, right? He's, like I said, he's already mentioned this idea to love others, to love your neighbor. But he's taking it one step further, and the new thing that he's teaching is don't just love as you love yourself. Love as I have loved you, right? And Jesus is loving them out of absolutely zero self-interest, right? He is not, he is demonstrating a love and a compassion for them that they do not deserve at all. <clears throat> and that's the new concept, right? They were, they were called to love as Jesus loves. And not only that, it says that all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we would not quarrel and fight with each other so much as the church, I'm thinking at, at large, then if we can show love for each other, then we demonstrate to the world God's love. That's what he's saying right here. If we love as Christ loves, then the world will see that. The world will know that. And he says, says it later on. He continues in John chapter 15. It says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Right? So he's looking ahead ultimately to this, this sacrifice that he's about to make. He's about to be arrested and he's about to die for us. And that is the greatest demonstration of love, to sacrifice ourselves uh, for our friends. And that's what he did for us. He sacrificed uh, for us. And so then John reiterated this when he wrote his letter uh, in 1 John. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who doesn't love does not know God, because God is love. Uh, in this is love. Uh, <clears throat> 
The love of God was made manifest that God sent his only son so that we might live through him. And then he continues at the end of that in verse 11. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So that is what we are called to do, to love one another just as Christ loved us. And, and finally, this, this love must continue to grow. Right? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I love. I love people. I love, I'm, I'm doing great with this. But you're better than me. I can tell you that much. Right? That's not me. Uh, but if you are, that's great. I mean, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, it's, but I think, I think one example, when you look in the scriptures, is 1 Thessalonians, where uh, Paul tells them, you guys are so, lo-. I mean, he, he talks about so much of the things that they have done, how they quickly turned away from their idols and they served God. And they served God with such fervor and such, uh, so much that other people around saw, right? They saw their faith and they were loving to each other. And he says that to them in, in, first, in first Thessalonians. First, let's look at chapter 3, verse uh, 12. He's, he's saying a prayer for them. And he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So he prays uh, that they would increase in their love. And you go a little bit further down in chapter 4. He tells them in chapter 4, verse 9, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For indeed, that is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So he's commending them. He's saying, you guys are loving you are loving people. You're loving one another. You're loving all of the brothers throughout all of the region, not just in your town, but all over the entire region that you're in. People see your love. They know your love. But then what does he say? But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Right? So even though you are loving, even though we have this love within us, we are to increase and abound in this love. When it says to do this more and more, uh, the word is, it's, it's an overabundance of love. It's, it's a, um, almost to the point you might think of being excessive. That's the terminology that's being used here. Is, is that's how strong our love should be for one another, is that it's, it's an overabundance of love and kindness to one another. <clears throat> so how do we do this? How do we love? And how do we continue to grow in our love as the Thessalonians were called to do. First, I think we, we need to study and read God's word, right? That maybe seems simple enough. Just read the Bible, right? That sounds like a, a Sunday school lesson, right? Just read the Bible. Read the Bible and pray. Well, that's what I'm saying you got to do is you got to read the Bible and pray. <laughs> uh, the only way that we can love God, right? The only way that we can love people is if we know what love is. And the only way we can know what love is is by reading and studying the word and seeing God's love for us, God's love for the world, and then how that is then played out in our lives, how we should love one another and love others, love our enemies, love our neighbors, love all. And again, the second thing, yeah, I think that we should pray. We pray that the Lord would apply his word to our hearts into our lives. 
Remember, that's what, that's what Paul did in 1 Thessalonians here, right? He, he said, yeah, you're, you are loving. Continue in that love, and I'm going to pray for you that your love would abound even more, right? So we pray. We pray when we feel unloving, when we have those moments when we, like, it's just a struggle to love this person right now. You know, we, I, I'm just maybe thinking of myself, but if it's hard to, to love a person, confess that to the Lord, right? Confess that to the Lord and say, I'm struggling with loving right now. Help me see your love so that I can show that love to others. And finally, uh, we need to obey his commands, right? Obey the commands that are in scriptures. If you look a few verses uh, in Galatians 5, a few verses before this passage of the fruit of the Spirit, um, in, in verse 13, it says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So Paul takes it even a step further than Jesus did and said, all of the law is fulfilled in this, if you love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're loving God. <clears throat> and then as, as Paul begins this discussion of the fruit of the Spirit, right? he says that we are to walk in the Spirit, and when you do so, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? When we're not walking in the Spirit, the works of the flesh manifest themselves in, in a number of things, right? And just a, a few examples that he gives there is idolatry is one of the first things that he says. Idolatry is what? That's loving something else other than God, right? We are not loving God. We do not have love. Then we're going to make idols for ourselves. Uh, think about the other things that he mentions, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all of those things, if we are not loving our neighbor as ourself, then we are not, this is what's going to happen, right? We're going to have rivalries, dissensions, divisions. But if we are loving, if we're loving our neighbors, if we're practicing that, we're walking in the Spirit, then we will not have to worry about those things, right? We will not be envious. We won't have strife or fits of anger. If we live in the Spirit, as he says here at the end of this uh, passage on the fruit of the Spirit. If we're in the Spirit, then we are to keep in step with the Spirit. To keep in step, it's, that's a, it's can be seen in two different ways. It's, it's a military formation, you're keeping in step, uh, but also it's used in dancing as well. And I, I was thinking of that in, as a, a dance routine, a dance choreography. Um, I'm not a dancer, <laughs> uh, not a dancer at all. I, I can't choreograph a dance, but when you watch even a person like me who doesn't understand all of the moves, doesn't know the names of all of the moves, you can tell when someone makes a mistake, right? You can see when someone misses their step. Like, oh, and there it is. That they messed that one up, right? That's the same with us. We are to keep in step because if we don't, people see that and it starts leading to these works of the flesh of <clears throat> strife and envy and fighting. So we are to keep in step with the Spirit, living in the Spirit. And as we do that, as we stay in step with the Spirit, as we're loving God and as we're loving others, we trust that God will work in us because he loves us and he wants us to love us, as love others as he loved us. Let's pray.